Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios in a very, very boring, uneventful day in world history, the 18th of March, 2022. I am delighted and honored to be joined in the studio today by Dr. Uh, Ken DeCleva, who is a longtime uh, experienced psychiatrist, both in the public and private sector, who has done a lot of intriguing work at the intersection of uh, kind of analysis and, and, and diagnosis, I suppose, of uh, people that we tend to face off as, against as adversaries, sometimes as, as Americans. Uh, so, but I will not ruin uh, his intro by, by stepping over his toes. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Christopher. It's a pleasure to be on your show and a pleasure to uh, see you. We've, we've met many times at the Cypher Brief Threat annual threat conferences. So I think both of us could certainly make a pitch for your audience to consider attending this conference, which is a one-of-a-kind conference that brings together experts in both the private sector and the U.S. government and former U.S. government and academia to talk about the leading national security challenges of our time. Oh, absolutely. The Cypher Brief is a phenomenal both uh, journalistic enterprise and a convening center for for, for kind of convention-like stuff uh, and also periodic uh, webinars and the like. So yeah, it's absolutely been brilliant for folks who are focused on national security issues. It's absolutely, absolutely crucial. And it's brought us together happily. Um, yeah. So yeah. it'd be great. Uh, the Messy Times listeners uh, tune in mainly to be, as we call it, enlightened. Uh, so we try to keep things pretty clear and punchy and dive into things that are of interest, but that people don't get a look into very frequently, right? So I think it'd be really fascinating to give a, you know, if you give us a bit of your background and and the work that you've done and how you got into the national security roles you did, that'd be a great, great place to kick off. Uh, thank you, yes. And once again, uh, regarding the Cypher Brief, I'd encourage your listeners to reach out to the CEO, Suzanne Kelly uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter and their CEO, Brad Christian. Uh, again, my background, I'm currently a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. I'm also a practicing psychiatrist, and I was formerly, from 2002 to 2016, a senior U.S. government uh, physician diplomat, mostly overseas, including five years in Russia, mm. several years in Europe, several years in Mexico, and several years in South Asia and India. And, and I also did a two-year stint in Washington, D.C. in a leadership role. Uh, prior to this government service, I had also worked in academia in Texas. And during that time, I had begun my interest in leadership analysis uh, with the late Dr. Gerald Post, who was a psychiatrist at George Washington University for many decades, but before that, was the founder and leader of a specialized unit at the CIA that developed profiles of world leaders, uh, primarily adversaries, but all world leaders for the national security policy community, the intelligence community, and its consumers all the way up to and including the president of the United States. In the mid nineties, uh, when I met Dr. Post, he and I published and presented a variety of, of profiles in academic settings of Dr. Radovan Karadzic, who's currently serving a life sentence for genocide and war crimes at The Hague, and the late, uh, Serbia's late President Slobodan Milosevic, 
who was a, who died while awaiting trial uh, at the Hague. And since my retirement, I've focused primarily on on adversarial leaders, trying to understand what makes them tick, if you will. Uh, leaders such as Putin, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the president of China, and Chairman Kim Jong Un of North Korea. And these profiles are published in open source, and uh, many of them in the Cipher Brief, but also in 38 North and The Hill and The Diplomat, and are designed to help people understand how leadership psychology uh, can be used to both understand these leaders, their strategies, their tactics, and what might be useful in both crises and negotiations, such as the one that we tragically face today. That's really interesting. I there, you, you touched on a number of points I'd like to dive into a bit. First of all, I love the idea of psychiatrist diplomat. That's a, just a tremendous hyphenated phrase that has never come across my desk or not nearly as frequently as it should perhaps. Is that sort of a common, um, is that a common role that exists within the Foreign Service establishment or, or how, how did you get into that? Yes, that role was different. My, my job in that role was not uh, leadership analysis or profiling, although I kept in touch with the field during the 14 years. But part of a larger medical program within the U.S. Department of State that cares for the well-being of 60 to 70,000 U.S. government diplomats from all federal agencies and their families and embassies and consulates right. around the world. So we worked in a kind of an integrated healthcare model with uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, regional medical officers, nurses, and local local medical assets. And there's about two dozen psychiatrists overseas. So we had regional hubs, large hubs, such as Moscow, where I served, or London, or Vienna, or Mexico, or New Delhi. And, and we would travel constantly to a different country almost every other week to a different embassy or consulate uh, caring for people in routine healthcare, but also responding to crises such as terrorist attacks, natural disasters, political crises, uh, and, and other such events. I was very privileged and honored to be a part of this program, which has been around for several decades. Uh, the, the psychiatric component of it was started by my colleague, uh, Dr. Esther Roberts, who retired after a distinguished 28-year career with the Foreign Service. Uh, she was one of the three psychiatrists that accompanied the 52 Iranian hostages in January of 1981, when they were released by Iran. Wow. And they flew from Algiers to Wiesbaden Air Force Base in Germany for further uh, medical testing and debriefing. Which I'm sure is extensive, that, that's phenomenal. Um, that's really interesting. T touching on the uh, work you've done with Dr. Post, you know, it's a different sort of, of predictive analytics, right? So on Wall Street, we are constantly doing lots and lots and lots of analytics, hoping for a prediction that has a pretty good uh, interval of accuracy, right? And then we backtest a lot. So I'm curious in that process, um, as you're analyzing people, often you don't actually get to meet, so you're relying on public information, you're analyzing people with seriously different cultural outlooks, which can be very challenging, right? What was, and I know that this, this is a really bad question, but you understand the intent. What was the kind of accuracy or success rate in hindsight of you know, profiling lots and lots of different leaders? Um, was that an inherently like, kind of useful tool for, for statecraft? Was it really accurate? It, it, 
I was kind of, I'm fascinated by kind of whether you're grading yourself on that or, or, you know, good efforts were good efforts and that's, that's enough. And it's an improvement over nothing. I, I think it's closer to the latter in the sense that it's probably more art than science. It's certainly based on a psychobiographical understanding of leaders. Um, the important point you made is that um, in general, most psychiatrists who do this work in the government and Dr. Post used to do this work, um, and, and I haven't met the leaders that were profiling. Um, I have, we rely heavily on open source material. Uh, the, of course, the intelligence community also has access to other potential classified material, but most of the profiles are based on open source, even in the intelligence community, probably 95, 90 to 95% of the data will be open source. So open source material, the, the leader's speeches, writings, social media posts, uh, videos of the leaders trying to assess their health, and secondary sources with people who have met the leader, who have either worked for the leader or have met the leader. That can include diplomats, other world leaders, businessmen, journalists, uh, intelligence officers, military officers, and kind of putting a piece together to try to understand the leader. It requires, as you pointed out correctly, looking at the leader through their own eyes, a, a certain degree of empathy, which can be difficult even for, uh, especially in the case of leaders who have done horrible things. Uh, and, and this was certainly the case in trying to understand uh, Dr. Karadzic and Slobodan Milosevic, right. as well as the other leaders. Um, and so I think that's important. It's, it's what you have to humanize uh, the leader to understand the leader through their cultural through the culture in which their leadership arose. Uh, that, I was helped by that because I speak Russian. In the case of Karadzic and Milosevic, I'm fluent in Serbian. I had translated uh, Karadzic's poetry, his eerie haunting poetry. Wow. That, that really kind of unconsciously yeah. foretold, written in the late 60s and 70s, foretold the war uh, that came about in the early 90s. It was just almost creepy to read it huh. with hindsight. Eerie, haunting, and creepy do not include the adjective good. Was his poetry any good? Or was actually, it actually, it, it <laughs> was, he, he won many awards for his poetry huh. when he was young. Uh, and later, after he became a, a, the leader of the Bosnian Serbs and, and at that time an indicted war criminal and for about a dozen years indicted and on the run in hiding in, in Serbia, Right. About 2008, when the Serbs turned him over to the Hague, uh, people tried to say, well, he was a lousy poet. But when he was young, they gave him various awards. And oh. interestingly, Karadzic, in his own estimation, claimed he was the greatest poet in the Serbian language. So his uh, ego got the better of him there. But he was a decent poet. As it, as it often does. Um, well, why don't, why don't we take a quick trip fast forward to today's current lunatic that this non-qualified, non-medical doctor, non-psychiatrist, we call Putin a irrational sociopath, right? From, from my point of view, from a Western point of view, you got tens of billions of dollars, you're the mafia don pretending to control the country, you're 70 years old, why not go buy 10 houses next to each other on Lake Como and spend the rest of your life eating caviar off of gold, gold plates, right? So something clearly drives him differently than would drive your basic Wall Streeter. Um, 
just kind of fascinated. Like, surely there's a huge amount of attention that has been paid to him over the last dec- couple of decades while he's been in power. You know, is there sort of a prevailing view that you could share that would enlighten people a bit as to what drives someone to bomb maternity hospitals in a country next door that's going to, in my mind, probably alienate him for, from everyone forever? There are several questions in, in your question. Let me point out that I don't rely, and, and most people that do this kind of work in the intelligence community as well, don't rely on psychiatric diagnoses. They're not that helpful. Yeah, for he's example, doing what he's doing. <laughs> the, classic, the classic diagnosis would be some type of narcissism, but uh, virtually all politicians would fall into that category. <laughs> not a distinguishing feature. <laughs> not, it's not helpful uh, in right. terms of negotiating. Mayor of New York, economy. leader of Russia, and both narcissists. Okay, so take that off the, the table. <laughs> the... the uh, the this type of psychology is as I as I've written before more about Sun Tzu than Freud. Right. Now that being said, Putin, we do have to look at him through through his own how he would see himself and how others around him would see him and how we've seen him for two decades. Putin has always been a KGB officer at heart. He was trained as a KGB officer and served as a KGB officer. He's been ruthless. His ruthlessness is not new. If you look at the bombing of Grozny in yeah. the early 2000s, the invasion of Georgia, the murder of Litvinenko in London with polonium-210, a nuclear weapon. Yeah. Uh, in sushi, very clever. Yeah, yeah. In tea, actually, at the at the Millennium Hotel. Ah, see there for all this, for all these years, I had this romantic notion. He slipped he slipped it into some Ica, but no, it's tea. Okay. <laughs> and and then uh, then the invasion uh, of Ukraine in in 2014 uh, and taking of Crimea and creating eight years of a horrible war in the Donbas area where over 10,000 people have died and and his support of the brutal attacks in Syria during 2015 to 2018 the bombing of Aleppo things right. like that so the attempted murder of Sergei Skripal in 2018 using Novichok, a banned chemical weapon, and the attempted murder of Navalny in 2020, again with Novichok. So in many ways, this Putin is not new. What 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 has changed is that in the United States, as well as in Europe, uh, Putin is a, a highly experienced, and until this invasion, I think it was fair to say, very exceptionally strategic and tactically minded leader who achieved most of his goals, i.e. he got away with it. Right. And, but the difference now is that he's older. And as Dr. Post wrote, many, many leaders when they get older, not all, but many develop what psychologists call more of a cognitive rigidity, Mm. where they see things more as black and white, and a lack of what they call, what Dr. Sudfeld, another psychologist who studied leadership in British Columbia called integrative complexity. So they have less of an ability to appreciate different points of view and nuance. And Putin was always in in the last decade or so much more isolated. And the, the famous German filmmaker and journalist made a wonderful film about this in 2013 called Ich Putin, I Putin. You can get it on YouTube. It's a documentary. 
He had a lot of access to Putin and his inner circle, but even then he wrote of his isolation. Hmm. But I think what's happened is during his first two terms in Russia, Putin really had a lot of the best and brightest uh, working for him, uh, both in terms of the security policy, but also uh, also domestic and economic policy. Alexei Kudrin, for example, the finance minister. Um, these were people that helped Putin manage the economy and get it on track hmm. after the doldrums of the 90s, the horrible doldrums and the near collapse of the Russian economy in 1998. Those people are all gone now, mostly. Uh, and he, unfortunately, he's surrounded with a much narrower, much more rigid inner circle of people like the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who had no military experience. No, I read something about him. He was a competent director of, of what we call, what we would call FEMA in the US. He was very competent in that role, but not in a military role. And his intelligence uh, chiefs, Bortnikov, are hard as hardline as Putin is, um, FSB insiders without a lot of overseas experience. Certainly Petrushov, the former FSB chief, is like that uh, as well. So Putin is drawn on a much narrower, tighter uh, inner circle. And if you look back in his early term, he had people like uh, Sergei Ivanov, the, the defense minister who was a former KGB officer in Europe who knew the West, had served in the West, was the youngest general in uh, KGB and SVR history. So those people are all retired. Uh, um, Yakunin, who's now the chairman of, of railways, he had a lot of very bright, talented so, people that he could tap into. Along that line, would it be fair to say that that sort of increasing rigidity of thought, the lack of attention to nuance, the intolerance for uh, shades of gray coincides with getting people out of the way who are going to argue with you and engage you in debate and say, no, 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 we really should do X for wheat production. And you're seeing the, you're not seeing it quite correctly, Mr. President. And you just start surrounding yourself by yes men who agree with your black and white view of the world. And we just get this perpetual exactly. spiral. Getting back to what you were saying, yes, you're entirely correct. Uh, you, you lose the capacity, and this was seen in that r rather fateful National Security Council meeting the evening nuts. before the invasion with, with, you could see the distance from his team, and, and there, there, it wasn't meant to show uh, any kind of an interaction or a dialogue. It was sort of like a trying to show a unanimity and when that broke through, when he when he humiliated uh, his SVR chief director uh, Sergei Narishkin, that was quite stunning. Right. To humiliate your own uh, foreign intelligence chief on international TV is humiliating not only for Narishkin but for the the proud officers who serve the SVR. Yep. The SVR is the successor to the KGB's foreign intelligence director, who always saw themselves as the proud elite of, of the USSR and Russia and the saviors of the Russian state. So Putin made himself a lot of enemies that evening. He has to be very careful and watch his back because- Well, that's, that's my first major question because the, the, the details of this are, are fascinating and important, but they're not you know, what I'm, I'm most curious about, what my listeners are most curious about is, um, you know, does this thing end with someone in the inner circle putting a bullet in Putin's head? I mean, how, how does this go on? Who, 
aside from a couple of core hardliners, who on earth is in favor of bombing maternity hospitals or, well, there, or the propaganda is so good yeah. that this they're controlling not, it? If you look at if you look at it, if you step away from the horror, which is hard to do because it's very emotional, it's very tragic, and these are potential war crimes. So Ugh. Putin certainly is he at risk? This is a legal discussion, but is he at risk down the road of being indicted for war crimes at the Hague? Yes, he could be under the under the doctrine that goes back to Yamashita in 1945 of command responsibility. Sure. But that's a separate discussion. But he'd never be called to account even if he were. So what? I mean, he, in that sense, he's a mafia don. Who's going to come get him? I mean, really? Well, he, he has to be careful because there are cracks in the inner circle. There have been certainly cracks among the oligarchs, and Putin has lashed back at them in a ranting speech earlier this week which was really quite striking. Uh, and, and what he's trying to do there is, is circle the wagons, if you will, and divide the oligarchs and say they're not really Russians, they're not right. really patriots. Typical stuff. This, this also has a degree of anti-Semitism in it that both Zelensky and his defense minister in the Ukraine are Jewish and many of the oligarchs are of Jewish descent. Right. So this is an old, sad trope in Russian history, and it reminds one of Stalin's doctor's plot in the late 40s and early 50s, right. where further purges attacked these intellectuals and physicians, many of whom were Jewish, to sort of uh, surround uh, himself with more yes-men and sort of try to consolidate his power in the waning years. So he's uh, going back to the commie classics. In a way, in <laughs> a way, yes, in this party is. Right. Uh, creating a, a harsher, a more vile propaganda. But I don't think it will work for several reasons. What, what people underestimate, even though Putin controls the media space in, in Russia, many Russians have relatives abroad that they can still talk to. Sure. There are hundreds of thousands of Russians, many of whom are dual national, living in Western Europe. So they all talk to their relatives. They, can, they know what's going on. So, and the elites that are serving overseas, their diplomats, their GRU officers, their SVR officers, they, they do what all diplomats and intelligence officers do everywhere. They watch the news, they keep up. They're very well informed. See what They're everybody's saying here. <laughs> so I think the idea that Putin may be in a propaganda bubble of his own making, but Russia, not necessarily. And as you sort of hinted at in your question, if you look at Russia as a, a one of the largest country in the world and a very important, albeit declining economy, which the Chinese said in their uh, profound op-ed in the New York Times last uh, this earlier this yes. week, printing that propaganda was a real bit of a coup for the New York Times. I was, stunned. but it was still important. <laughs> it was stunning in its rebuke of Putin and Russia. If you read between the lines, well, sure, they, this trade has not gone well. They want to lay down a the, this is bad for route. This is the bottom line for many of your private sector investors is that Putin has now become bad for business. If yeah. you look at him as the CEO of Russia Incorporated. This is where you replace the CEO and let him retire, right. because it's it, he's taken. He's the, moved on to private pursuits, I believe the phrase is. Yes. <laughs> well, he's taken Russia back. He's undone the gains, many of which he deserved credit for. In the yeah, first the grocery store years. shelves in Moscow 
Welcome back to the Soviet Union. It only yeah. took three weeks. It's impressive. He has returned the glory of the Soviet Union in a mere month. It took a week, actually. The ruble, <laughs> the ruble went down twenty-eight percent in value. The 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 response by the uh, by the West and the Europeans, the sanctions have been crushing. Uh, so, what Putin? This is generational in the sense that we have a whole generation in Russia that has grown up after nineteen ninety-one, right? Or, or that were born in the eighties that were kids. They've traveled. When I lived in Russia, my second term there from 2010 to 2013, one out of three Russians had a passport and traveled abroad to Europe, to America, to the Middle East, to Asia, to Southeast Asia. This whole group of people uh, cannot, while they may resonate with some of the ideas of, of Putin's that Russia is under assault from NATO and those kind of things that he's brought up repeatedly right. for decades, they're also they're also modern uh, citizens. They're much more worldly. So I and and there's a brain drain, which is tragic for Russia. Thousands of these people are now, if they're able to, they're getting out. This doesn't oh, yeah. help Russia. Yeah, no, I knew in, in New York in the '90s. I spent a lot of time with a lot of Russian friends who the the ability, which Americans, of course, always took for granted, that I could through my own efforts like make money and change my life. It was like a burst of oxygen and and you know, cocaine with the side effects to them. <laughs> you know, like I could I could leave this stultifying environment, and if I work hard, I will get stuff and I will live a better life and I will have a brand new phone and a new car. And if they were they were some of the funniest people I still have ever known. Uh, just their sheer delight in capitalism was one of the most kind of refreshing things to see. Uh, Russians in the nineties in New York were the were fun. <laughs> And I, I would, I would, uh, I would really alert your your listeners to the fact that this is a stunning intelligence failure on the part of Putin. Oh, God. And colossal! He, he didn't control the information space in the Ukraine, and both the the courage and resilience of the Ukrainian people and of their the heroism and courage of Zelensky, their Churchillian leader. Uh, was something that I don't think anyone predicted. Even the Americans didn't. We offered his response to the American president will be down in history with Churchill's. We'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them in the streets. When he said, "I don't need a ride. I need ammunition," that was one of the yeah. greatest things anyone's ever said in world history. Well, <laughs> I think he was an he was a relative lightweight as a politician, not a natural politician. Although now we would say he's quite a natural. Um, he's he's the 21st century version of the great communicator. Yeah. Uh, well, all he, comedians are all successful comedians are arguably phenomenal politicians. Yes, like, that's that's a persuasive role. Anyone can be funny in stand up, but to have the kind of extensive career he did with it with an audience and a draw, you know, very very talented. He, he found his voice, and and uh, I I think he will be on the cover of Time as Man of the Year at the end of the year. And I, I have nothing but the greatest admiration for the leadership that he's shown. That's important because he's shown us something that a lot of political scientists tend to ignore. The, what they say is leadership doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's in power. Uh, uh, all you have to do is look at the external political and economic factors, and that explains why nations do what they do. But I think both if you look at this horrible war, both Putin and Zelensky have in their own ways shown leadership absolutely matters. And others are watching. 
the Chinese are, are watching very carefully because the Chinese leadership, Xi Jinping and his top leaders, they value stability because that allows them to proceed forward with, with Xi's uh, reappointment to a third, uh, an unprecedented third five-year term in October of 2022. And they don't like instability. It's bad for their brand too. And we've seen a lot of mixed messaging coming out of the Chinese government where you'll see in their propaganda arm, like Global Times, things look much more pro-Putin, if you will. But if you look at the, the, the op-ed uh, by Wang, Dr. Wang Puyao, who is linked with the Chinese uh, government affiliated think tank and with the United Front, I'm glad the New York Times published that because that would not have been published without Xi Jinping's blessing and imprimatur. And if you read between the lines on that op-ed, it's stunning in its rebuke of Russia. And then the, the Chinese ambassador to the Ukraine, his comments this week, equally striking, where he talked about the sacrifice and the unity and how he supports the unity of the Ukrainian people. And Foreign Minister Wang Yi's comments all along that Ukraine, that you have issues of sovereignty in Ukraine is no different from any other country in this regard. So I think what's odd about the Chinese is the mixed messaging coming from certain very high level people and then you have the propaganda pieces they're trying to play it both ways but the longer the war drags on and the and the media response to the war the social media and the horrors of the of the bombings and potential war crimes bombings of hospitals oh, a, a father cradling his 12 year old son whose legs got blown off playing soccer it's not good for business right the chinese the chinese are i think going to be increasingly backing away from Putin while not backing away from Russia. The other thing that's really interesting that came out two weeks ago uh, is the uh, unclassified version of the United States intelligence community's um, annual threat report. And, and this is well worth reading for your listeners. And both uh, Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, and Director of the CIA, uh, Bill Burns testified uh, last week when they presented uh, the report. And in the, and in the summary, the executive summary of the report, they talk about a multipolar world, that the world is more complex, uh, to borrow your term, messier and multipolar. <laughs> it, we do indeed live in messy times. <laughs> yeah. The word multipolar is, is, is Chinese code word. That they that they threw in there. I thought that was interesting that they right. said that, that it's not a bipolar world, it's not a unipolar world, it's much more complex. So that was a that was kind of a an olive branch to the Chinese for our intelligence community to say we we get it. You're a strategic competitor, but you're not gonna go away. Uh, no, they have no intention of going away, quite the contrary. Uh, and the, the more that Americans wake up to that, the better. So th this, is, this is really important. The other thing that's important is while we have these horrors of war, there are diplomatic feelers being put out. And I think, I think what we're gonna see is eventually some kind of a ceasefire. I'm afraid it'll get worse before it gets better, but a ceasefire which will allow for some type of mediation, which will be required probably by a third party. The most likely third party would be China 
but other other options that have been tried and will be tried again include Israel, which has close relationships with Russia and uh, Israel's Prime Minister Bennett, who has made several trips to Moscow, is close to uh, to Russia's President Putin, and and I would I would put India in there because of um, their their Prime Minister Modi is very he has good relationships with Putin. They buy most of their military kit from Russia and their spare parts. Right, and they have a long history of close relationships, and their their brilliant foreign minister Jai Shankar has uh, knows all the players. He served as ambassador in the United States in China, and his first tour was in Moscow. So I think we'll see some type of figure like of that stature and gravitas uh, play a mediator role, uh, analogous to what um, the former Finnish. Uh, Foreign Minister, Prime Minister, and Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, Marty Akhtisari did in 1999 to help resolve the Kosovo War after 87 days. Right. Well, hopefully, I just hope the bloodshed stops the madness. Uh, moving on from that, just kind of more generally, I'm fascinated by, and I, 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 I. Having been asked as a specialist to make generalist statements, I know how kind of mind-grindingly irritating that can be. But in terms of, you know, the study that you've done around leadership and effective leadership uh, cross-culturally, you know, are there common themes? Like, you know, Daniel Kahneman will write about, you know, the various types of, of ways we process information and how that affects how we do things. And if you're more aware of you know, your type two sort of analytical processes versus your type one. He, so he's got it. He's derived some sort of generalized framework out of many, many, many specifics. Is there anything equivalent in the kind of work that you and your colleagues have done that we, points to certain characteristics? From, yeah, we've learned from Kahneman's work. I think uh, a leadership analyst is really a subspecialty of a larger branch of what's called intelligence analysis. And we, we've certainly learned from uh, our colleagues in the broader intelligence world uh, and the works of people. The classic is Dr. Richard Sawyer or Dr. Tom Finger at Stanford and, and Daniel Kahneman's work of, of thinking fast and thinking slow. If you, if you borrow Kahneman's uh, analogy here, I think... Uh, other leaders in the West uh, are probably being careful. And, and also Xi Jinping, they're thinking slow. I think Putin, on the other hand, is, is even more narrowly kind of relying on what Kahneman would call thinking fast. Hmm. And, and the other problem with, with this, with the diplomacy and trying to understand Putin is this also has the elements of a hostage negotiation. Uh, where he's holding the Ukraine and the West hostage uh, because he has 6,000 nuclear weapons. So Yeah, in a very he, real sense, trying to figure him out is irrelevant. I mean, the men's a nightmare that has to be stopped. Whatever and, his causes are, right? Yeah. Whatever drives but, him. But when you negotiate, we borrow from FBI negotiation psychology. Uh, and, and as uh, writers such as Gary Nasner, the, the retired FBI agent, or Christopher Voss have written, they're both former senior FBI negotiators, you have to use what's called tactical empathy. That, uh, that doesn't mean sympathy and it doesn't mean agreement or assent. 
but you have to put yourself in Vladimir Putin's shoes and, and say, what would he do? So I think, I think the language that our leaders use has to be very delicate and careful. Um, name calling is not helpful. Oh, we uh, got problems there then. Calling, calling, call, publicly calling him a war criminal or a thug or a dictator, that kind of name calling is not helpful. The goal is to get Vladimir Putin to declare a ceasefire and to somehow, in his own mind, he has to believe that he's achieved his goals and can step back pull the troops back, stop the horror, stop the bombing, uh, and and have some sort of an outcome that works for Russia, even though I think Russia will have to self-correct, otherwise it will risk being a pariah state. And I think it will. It's, it's similar to Arnold Schwarzenegger's very moving message to the Russian people uh, yesterday. It's about an eight-minute message on Twitter. And what Schwarzenegger said, uh, he said... To President Putin, you started this war. You too can end this war. So I think that he was very diplomatic and didn't resort to name calling, but simply made an appeal to to the better natures of the Russian people. Well, he reminded them that his father was lied to and found himself in Russia shooting at Russians for reasons that made no sense whatsoever and came back, luckily alive. A um, broken man, he said. That, that was striking. That was very emotional and deeply moving. But it's, it's interesting because there are a range of outcomes, right? And one is, right now, everyone wants it to stop. Uh, of course, everybody wants to stop, right? But, you know, if you go back to 1941, who cares if Adolf Hitler wants to, you know, think he's won something? He deserves to die. Who cares what he wants? I mean, he started a war, and you should end the war. And I think that's going to be the hard part we're going to face here, right? Is why should Putin continue to get away with stuff, which we've allowed him to do for 20 years now, you know, going back to Crimea, what, 12 years? Um, how much, when does the world say enough is enough? When does the world say this is going to drag us into Armageddon if we don't put an end to this nonsense? I think the Russian people and the government, including uh, people in the security services, are going to make that decision. God will. And, and uh, I think for our uh, brave intelligence officers who serve around the world from different uh, countries, Western Europe, I would say I would include China, I would include Israel, I would include the United States, Britain, others, big powers, Germany, France. They are going to be reaching out to their counterparts, what they call liaison with their senior SVR chiefs in different embassies around the world and both getting that message to them, but also trying to understand where they're coming from and what they want to do. Because uh, as I've said before, the, the senior diplomats and senior intelligence officers in Russia, and I've had the chance to bump elbows with them at receptions when I was overseas, are, are the elite of Russia. They're the best of the best. They're multilingual, they're multicultural, they've lived all over the world. They, and in Europe, they know where all the money is because they help set up all of those bank accounts all over Europe. So I think there's gonna be a lot of activity behind the scenes to, to allow Russia to self-correct because the long-term goal is not for Russia to be a pariah state. The long-term oh, goal is, 
to have Russia be part of the family of nations. But part of part of the the the, the confoundment, though, for normal mortals like me, is all those people existed five weeks ago. How did the, how with all that clever talent and all that ability did this go forward? I mean, it's 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 madness. They backed them. Putin has backed them into a really bad place, really bad. And how do they? I, I, I take your point, but you know they didn't prevent it. No, that's true. And in 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 increasingly isolated authoritarian type of system, uh, this decision was we don't know, but but best guesses are is that it wasn't solely Putin's decision, but it was likely a very tight inner circle of true believers, if you will, people right. like Bortnikov and and. Uh, and uh, Petrushov and Shoigu, who are close to Putin for decades, they go hunting and fishing with him on his vacations in Siberia. They're they, they either Putin made the decision. There, there's a lot of thinking that they may have told him what he wants to hear, and now he's blaming some of his um, FSB leadership. There are credible reports from Andrei Soldatov in, Ru in Russia that last week Putin sacked uh, two of his intelligence chiefs in the FSB that were responsible for handling um, intelligence on the Ukraine. Right. And I wouldn't be surprised if he sacks other people. Oh, uh, absolutely. Generals in the military and and the way he humiliated uh, SVR director Nadishkin, he, he might replace them. And that's even more risky then because then you have more you have really bright people who are then replaced, like Nadishkin. Nadishkin was a former KGB intelligence officer, a businessman, and for many years, Speaker of the Duma, equivalent to our Speaker of the House. Um, so you replace them with people that don't have that level of experience and contacts, uh, both in Russia and around the world, and well, that creates more problems. I think it's also an interesting thought experiment for a lot of Americans, because not remotely on the same scale of atrocity, right? But we're seeing something very similar. In my former beloved hometown of New York, I had to leave. You've got crime spiraling out of control. You've got a few nutcases in the legislature that passed these no bail laws. New Yorkers are watching crazy people smear human feces on women randomly in the subways who are then released without bail the next morning. You've got a district attorney so it's not nearly an invasion of Ukraine, but it's also easy to see how a small group of ideologues who seize control of power, even in a representative democracy, can wreak havoc, at least until the next election cycle. Right? So it's, it's, it's not, again, not remotely the same in terms of the scale, but the dynamics are very similar. A, a core handful of highly motivated people who do not share majoritarian views whatsoever can radically disrupt society um, willy-nilly with very little control on them in the near term. I, I, I'm going to have to disappoint you. I don't profile American politicians uh, <laughs> or comment on American politics. Uh, my tradition comes from profiling adversary leaders overseas, but uh, I anecdotally, I can tell you and your listeners, having lived in New York in the early 80s for two years as a pre-med. I remember what it was like then and then how it improved uh, in later years. So 
again, uh, our, our country is a very sadly divided country and it's not without its challenges. But one of the things that's important for your listeners to know is um, this is where our adversaries underestimate America, our, uh, including our leaders, but also the American people. Right. They underestimate American exceptionalism and our natural history and resilience and ability to rebound after these kind of difficult challenges. I think Xi Jinping underestimates it. I think he and his leadership think America's in decline and weak. Uh, Putin certainly did. He did not expect President Biden to be able to rally the Europeans and NATO as he's so ably done. I think he, he looked at the polls and he thought uh, the week before the Ukraine invasion, starting the war, President Biden's poll numbers were 36% approval. So I think, I think our adversaries have to be careful because the American people have a resilience. We've bounced back from other hard times in the 70s um, after 9-11. After uh, and I'm, I'm an optimist. So I think uh, the challenges are the division our country faces We'll bounce back from that. And it's been really heartening to see the unity in our country around the, around supporting the Ukraine, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, both symbolically and in many other ways. Um, so I think that's, that's heartening. And I think that probably reflects, Zelensky is kind of a, a he's so unusual and so courageous. He's such a hero, but we need, heroic, courageous leaders. During the two years of the pandemic, we've often seen failures of leadership around the world. Massive. And so this gives people hope and hope is important. And, 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 and you, you touch on exactly one of those very important points, right? From an American perspective, trying to analyze leaders in a, in a very different cultural situation. Similarly, um, having lived you know, around the world and worked around the world, People, non-Americans, really don't get that about Americans. Like they really just don't get that that sort of core intangible cultural value that you know that old you know Arab saying. Even my my uh, my uh, friend, you know, basically the, the degrees of of, of consequently and the degrees of, of of fighting. Right when it comes down to it, you know, my brother and I will fight my cousin. My cousin and I will fight our in-laws, our in-laws and all together will fight the other tribe and the nation together will fight someone else, right? There, there, are, there are degrees to which if everything's fine, we can butt heads and fight about stuff a lot. But the moment something bigger comes along, uh, there's a much more focused threat. Now, I found one of the most fascinating slip-ups in my mind um, the Chinese made is, is they drew the incredibly wrong lessons from 2007-08 financial crisis, which we could dive into my area of expertise for ages, the wild and deliberate misattribution of blame for causality from politicians in the media going on about greedy bankers when it was 30 years of terrible US you know, housing policy that caused the crash. Get into that another time. But the fact that there are two very strong political fights about that, right? Uh, 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 Peter Wallace wrote a great book called Bad History, Worse Policy meaning if you allow someone to misdiagnose the cause of something, you're then going to get really stupid results going forward. And I tell all junior employees constantly, slightly tongue in cheek, but that 
there are at least three areas of endeavor in this world where absolute objective acceptance of reality is crucial. Buddhism, alcoholism, and finance. <laughs> if you don't accept reality, you're fixing the wrong problem, right? If you don't diagnose the problem, you're fixing the wrong problem. And, and I, I'm curious about that. You're looking at various countries and how they look at the world. But in my opinion, Xi Jinping made a massive mistake in the Chinese communists from their cultural viewpoint, radically misdiagnosed 2008 and thought that was another nail in the West coffin. America is failing. They allowed this horrible collapse of the banking system to occur. And they instantly got a lot more aggressive on the world stage after that. They've been, they've been progressively more aggressive in a range of ways since then, not quite understanding the blowback that that can bring. I think yeah, I agree with parts of that. I think that they, well, they certainly have gotten more aggressive and that has a lot to do with with Xi's vision and his great dream of rejuvenation of the Chinese people and, and his soaring ambitions in that regard and his, his tying his ambitions to basically nationalism as well as to some extent to ideology. Mm. But where, where she has to be careful uh, is again, America can bounce back. And I think the Chinese narrative that's been published in open source by their, their think tanks and leaders of think tanks is that we're in decline. Right. And they, they, they have to be careful. Uh, they, the Iranians, the North Koreans, um, the Syrians, our other adversaries, certainly Russia, need to be very, very careful because they can have real intelligence failures uh, if and when they get that wrong. And I think they've already um, gotten that wrong. And I think given the American and Western response to Putin's uh, invasion of the Ukraine, I think the Chinese certainly are gonna take a step back right. and, and try to thread that needle and, and kind of look again. I, I think the other thing that they have to look at is generational too. We've had uh, the, the 2024 election in the United States is gonna be very consequential because we have sort of the passing of the torch from a generation of you know older politicians, whether it's President Biden or- Poor lips to God's ears, and my others. <laughs> there's, there's a new generation that our adversaries are going to want to be informed about and study and see where do they take uh, America in the decades ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm a, as a former diplomat, a proud diplomat and American citizen, I would never bet against the United States of America. No, no, and I appreciate that. One last question, because I'm cognizant of your time. Um, one thing I've absolutely found absolutely fascinating uh, is, and speaking in generalities, obviously without you know attribution to a given situation, a given administration, it, it has to be inevitable that at some point, unless you're a purely political appointee who comes and goes with administration, um, there must, there, there, I, well, I'm, sorry. I'm assuming there must be points along the way. If you are a career diplomat or you're, you serve across multiple administrations with multiple parties in charge, are there often moments where you think, wow, that's really not the way that we should go, but I understand the rationale and I'm 
kind of perfectly on board with that. Or I guess to the bright line of like, there's absolutely no way I can implement that and I'm handing in my resignation letter. You know, or is there somewhere in the middle you try to just kind of keep the best interests of the country at heart and execute the mission, even when it can be coming from different sources? Most diplomats uh, work, I think, in the middle uh, and, and are, you know, looking for areas of where we can align different interests, including with, with enemies. That's, that's why they go into diplomacy. Uh, when all diplomats, including specialists, such as myself, I was a physician diplomat, or when you join, you're required to sign all these forms, including that you, and you take an oath to protect and serve and defend the constitution. And you sign a form saying you will support the foreign policy of the president. Right. That doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but as a practicing diplomat, you have to support it and try to explain it to your interlocutors. Now, there, there have been cases where people couldn't do that and then they resigned. Um, and, and that's okay. That's our system. Uh, sure. And it, it's worked very well for the Foreign Service for uh, 200 years. And I, I have nothing but admiration for our, our courageous diplomats and, and their families and intelligence officers and their families and military officers and their families and enlisted who serve overseas to keep America safe. That's, that's, that is good to know. Is there anything, just from a point of view of having dealt in big organizations and small organizations, um, there must be some, well, I would hope, you know, is there some sort of continuous improvement um, and, and a process of internal, you know, kind of after action reporting for um, longer term Longer-term engagements like diplomatic missions are different than sharp military engagements, right? You have to do an after-action report after a military engagement that's very different. It's it's punctual, it's complicated, it's heated, but something that could go on for years potentially as a negotiation. Is, is there a sort of way that all that knowledge is instantiated and, and passed on? Or is a lot yeah, of it it's, 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 it's in the in the world of, of the diplomatic bureaucracy, it's passed on in cables. And and there, 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 there are a variety of different types of cables written by commercial officers, economics officers, uh, political officers, um, and the most the most interesting, uh, I think, were ambassadors will often write what they call an end of tour report. Right. Where they summarize the key issues that they dealt with in their two or three or four years, and sort of something for their successor. Um, I'm sure this is similar to what happens in business in transitions. And that way you keep the, the institutional memory alive and useful for the next generation. Right. And there's certainly the, the diplomatic service, like any bureaucracy, is constantly being forced to, in this day and age, uh, reinvent itself. And, and particularly the, during the pandemic, relying on on tools that they might not have needed to 20 years ago like hybrid work uh, the same things your your business uh, uh, colleagues have dealt with hybrid the nature of hybrid work in person versus online and hybrid and and dealing with social media uh, right. that that wasn't around but now I'm sure that I think every ambassador serving overseas for the United States government has a Twitter handle. Uh, 
where they can reach a broader audience. Right. Well, are there any things I've missed? Any things you think that are really important that you'd like you know people to be aware of as as kind of normal engaged American citizens and many foreigners? Frankly, we've got a wide audience. Um, the things that you'd punctuate and highlight that people should pay attention to. I think uh, we've talked. Thank you. I think we've talked a lot today about leadership, and and I think my message to your listeners is is leadership matters. Whether it's leadership in diplomacy and in, in governments. Uh, in the intelligence community, in the world of medicine, uh, in business, in, in private equity, hedge funds, corporate America, uh, leadership matters. And, and it probably matters more than ever. Uh, and that requires different abilities and skill sets from leaders, different challenges that, that in today's, as you would put it, messy, much more complex world, are more necessary than ever. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Great conversation. Uh, we, we love to have folks with deep expertise sharing their experience and insights because, you know, most people just don't get to see into the world that you inhabit um, you know, fluently. So uh, deeply appreciate that. And, uh, you know, we'll have you on again. We'll pick it, pick it on the topic. Hopefully after the uh, war in Ukraine ends, we can diagnose what happened. Hopefully the end will be better than we expect. Um, until then, thank you very again. much for thank you, Christopher, for having me. I look forward to seeing you at the next annual threat conference of the Cipher Brief. A Amen. Care. And we'll close with our traditional closing, which is to uh, admonish our listeners to save themselves time and, and heartache and brain ache by turning off the mainstream media and tuning into messy times. 